continuing with the question and answer, of course, we looked at some um, overviews, and we're not going to get into specifics of all those things because God does give some grace. God does give some space for mercy. And I, as we look at the Scripture, we do see some principles that we talked about as far as plagues and diseases and how one should handle uh, that. And there are some differences from instructions that the Word of God has given to how our government is handling it. And so what happens when those instructions or the what is followed or what is being done is different than what God's instructions are? How should I handle this? How should I respond to this? Tonight I want to look at a portion of Scripture this evening that gives a testimony of one that handled this marvelously, that handled this in a very godly manner, and God used it in a powerful way. I want us to look at the life tonight of Mordecai and Esther. As the Holy Spirit has been teaching my heart and has been working in my heart, and I've learned some things. There were some things that we began at the, at the first part of this that uh, we stated that I think we're going to revise a little bit tonight as far as maybe get a little more biblical uh, in some areas and then look at some instruction. Uh, some of it you'll, we have stated uh, in previous months, but I think a lot of it is just going to be contextually looking at this and seeing the testimony of the Lord tonight, and we want to do that this evening. And so as we look at this, we're going to look at the first three verses by way of introduction tonight of Esther chapter 3, or I'm sorry, of Esther chapter 4, and we'll begin there and then continue through Scripture. Notice what the Bible says. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud voice and a bitter cry. And came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every providence, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Father, once again, I need your wisdom. Help me, please, to teach your word. Guide our thoughts tonight. I pray that your word truly be a preeminent above all things this evening. Thank you for your truth. Help us to see the truth of God tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Esther, we see that the Jews are in captivity. They're in Babylon. They have disobeyed God for many years and God was now had now delivered them into captivity into the Syrians and the Babylonians and they were now serving on strange lands and strange areas as it were and as they were in captivity obviously things were not run like they were when they were in Israel things were not done like they were in Jerusalem and as they served and as they worked in these in the society the Bible teaches us in chapter 3, you can go and read chapter 3, study it out uh, after this evening, and you'll learn so much for how God has set the context. I'm going to give a quick overview of the context as we get into uh, Scripture here tonight. We see King Ahasuerus, or 
King Xerxes, either, either name would be the equivalent, uh, but King Ahasuerus is what the Bible speaks of in Esther. The Bible tells us he was deceived by a very wicked man named Haman. Haman hated a, a Mordecai, who was a Jew, and Mordecai would not bow to him and worship him as he desired. He wanted to be worshipped as a god, as someone who was revered like God, and Mordecai refused to do so. He refused to make a man a god. And as he refused to bow before Mordecai, Haman decided to make a decree to kill every Jew, and he deceived King Ahasuerus to sign this decree, thinking that there was an enemy from within that was about to revolt, that was about to rebel, that was about to cause great harm to his country, and he, through a heart of protecting, not fully knowing what Haman was speaking of, signed this decree. This decree went out to all the cities, and as people heard the decree, they were confused by it. Some were taken back by it. What is going on? Why would the king sign this? I have many Jewish friends. I have many people that work with me that are Jewish. They're wonderful people. I enjoy working with him. Are they perfect? No, but I don't see anything, any reason why to kill every one of them. This doesn't make sense to us. There was much confusion that went on in the society. There was much that was taking place. And as the news came across the Gentiles as well as the Jewish ears, there were some actions, some responses that took place. Specifically tonight, we're going to look at God's people this evening because that's what the Bible refers and speaks of, God's people. And as we look at God's people tonight, I want us to see how they acted. How, what choices did they make? What was their first instinct? And I think as we look at the scripture tonight, I, I think we'll see among God's people, we often have different responses than what the people of the word of God had. And I think we need to align ourselves, and I know we need to align ourselves, with the instruction which God gives. So let's look at it tonight. We're going to start in verse number one. But as we begin to look at it, I want you to notice, first of all, that their response began through humility. Their first instinct was to humble themselves. Let's read scripture. So much we could say there. I'm not going to, uh, we'll let this Bible speak here tonight. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, notice this statement, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes. The Bible says that the first instinct that Mordecai had when he had perceived, when he had heard, when he knew the news of what was taking place, that he and all of his people, including his niece, who was now Queen Esther, he, both all, all of them, all of his family, all of his friends, they would be killed in this decree. His first instinct was to rend his clothes, what they would do in this time of society is they would outwardly display so often the brokenness on the inside. 
And that's what that rending of clothes would be. It would be a breaking of a heart that is broken, a heart that is raw, a life that is distressed. And the first instinct that he had was to show outwardly the inward breaking of a heart, the inward wound that was inflicted. And he showed that by what? Rending his clothes, by tearing his clothes. They wouldn't tear them off. They would tear them enough to where it would be visible and they would be obvious to those who would meet them that there was a distress, there was a brokenness there. And it was an outward sign of a heart that was broken. But not only did he rend his clothes or tear his clothes, but the Bible tells us he put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is a very coarse material. I remember when I was a boy, we would sometimes go to farmer's markets. And as we would go to a farmer's market, sometimes we would pick up a sack of potatoes. And sometimes these sacks of potatoes would come with a very coarse, fibrous, sticky, scratchy material that would cover the whole, uh, the whole uh, 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 container of potatoes or contain the potatoes in like a bag. And that's the similar type of material. It's a very coarse, abrasive material. And they would put that on to show an irritation or a physical irritation that would, of course, afflict their skin to symbolize the distress and anguish in their heart. Their heart was hurting, their heart was wounded, their heart was bleeding. And as the anguish that was uh, so real in their heart, they would symbolize that by rending the clothes and putting on the sackcloth, showing that their heart is humbling. Look at verse number three. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews. Notice these words, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth in ashes. Mordecai wasn't the only one. Mordecai wasn't the only one that decided to humble himself. People across the land knew that this was a powerful display to show a willingness to humble themselves, to show what their heart is feeling, and to show that there is a breaking of their heart and they are wanting to uh, uh, and willing to rethink, reevaluate, and even change one's direction in their heart and life. They're willing to afflict themselves in essence, showing that our heart is humbling, our heart is wounded. We recognize that our way is not working and we are willing to humble ourselves through a demonstration of humility. This was a symbol that, a, such a humble symbol that even Mordecai was not allowed to attend his position within the king's gates because of the material in which he was wearing. It was not fitting to be in the king's court. It was not fitting to serve among the palace, as it were. Haman would not even be allowed to go into the court or into the gate and begin his continual position. Why? Because of the humility in which he was displaying that was deemed in that society as not fitting for a king or associated with the king. 
so he instead would stay outside the king's gates displaying this humbleness, a willingness to follow the Lord. They were willing to humble themselves and accept God's plan. As we think of humility, as we think of a humbleness, I want us to understand a few things here. First of all, we need to understand that God is just. What does that mean, God is just? That means He is right. He is truth. There's no truth apart from God. He is, his way is always right. He is perfect in every way. He is just. He is holy. Secondly, tonight we need to understand that God is good. He does that which is good all the time. Even the situations in which we find ourselves in a temporary time may not appear good on the surface, but God sees further down and knows that there is a good that is going to come through it that only can be done with him. He knows that the ultimate plan, he knows that the destination will be good. And thirdly, tonight we need to understand, remind ourselves that God is love. The motive behind all that God does is love. He loves us. And he is willing to teach us through love so we may know him better and understand his will, understand his plan. And by the way, we may never fully understand all that God has done in his will until we get to heaven. However, there have been some times in my life in which I look back and I can see some reasons in which God has delayed some things. I see why God delayed the reason, uh, uh, see why God delayed us from coming and serving here in this church and put it off longer than I thought it should be because as I look at that time span between us saying we're coming and the time in which we were able to come, God then would take the former pastor of this church and move them to begin another church and God knew that this church would need a pastor, would need someone and God's will wasn't revealed at that moment in two years in the in the time of saying, yes, we want to be here and wanting to come. It didn't make sense to us. But God had a plan. God had a purpose. God had a reason. God loved us. God loved this church. And he so wonderfully put us together. And thank God he did. Oh, what a wonderful family God has established here. Oh, how my heart has been encouraged as I have seen throughout this time of difficulty, families reaching out to one another, connecting, encouraging one another, sending messages and calling and just trying to keep connected and oh, how wonderfully encouraging that is to me. You have no idea what that does to my heart. I am grateful and thankful for how God has put a love for his people among his people. Thank God for that. God's been so good. But as we think of these things that the, of the just, of our just God, our good God, and our loving God, we need to understand tonight that God leads his people. As we think of humility, I want to put the right context. In the, let me tie all this together here. God leads his people. God doesn't bully his people. God is not a bully. 
God's a good father. He leads his people. There's a difference between leading and bullying. A big difference. God is one who gently leads his people. And as he leads his people, he guides us and directs us and helps us to see choices and to make choices by our own free will. God has a purpose and a plan. And he wants us to humbly recognize that his plan is better than our plans ever could be. And if we recognize that and understand that he has a perfect way, he has a perfect plan, and he as our loving God is trying to do that which is good in our life, we ought to be able to humble ourselves. Humility is recognizing that and understanding and accepting that God's ways and his will are good. Is that not what Jesus taught? As he taught the model prayer, sometimes we call it the Lord's prayer. We could call it the Lord's model prayer. This is not a prayer that we should just simply recite out of repetition, but God has given us a pattern for how we ought to pray. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 9, the Bible tells us, After this manner, therefore pray ye. Notice it's after this manner. He doesn't say pray exactly these words, but he says take what I'm about to say, model it, pattern your prayer life after this. He says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed, be thy name. God says the first thing we ought to do in our prayer life is to recognize our great God, recognize that he is perfect, that he is holy, and praise him as such. Hallow him. Lift up his name. Praise his name. Recognize that he is right, that he is good, and he is lovingly working in our lives. Notice what Jesus says next. Thy kingdom come. Humility is recognizing that God's kingdom is better than any kingdom that I could establish or could be a part of on this earth. His kingdom is great. His kingdom is above all kingdoms. God wants us to be focused upon and humbled upon his kingdom, looking for his kingdom to be established speaking of the return of Christ and speaking of that time in which he'll rule and reign and which we will be with forever with the Lord, he as our king. Oh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to have a perfect king? Aren't we so tired of small kings? I heard a, a fellow pastor say this, uh, say this this uh, past week, and I enjoy this statement. It's a great statement. I'll give it to you tonight. He says, I'm tired of looking at small kings when I can look at simply the big king. And oh, how true that is. Every king that thinks he has power here on this earth is small compared to my God. He's minuscule. He has zero. He has no power compared to our God. It's incredible at who our God is. His kingdom. Focused upon his kingdom. Notice what he says. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Humility immediately is taught of looking to God and saying, God, you're right. You're perfect. You're good. You're holy. 
I want to have a part in your kingdom, in your purpose, in your plan. And God, I want to work in that. I want to serve in that. And God, I want your will to be done. Not mine. That is humility. Humility is setting aside our desires, our intentions, and focusing upon the Lord and saying, God knows what's best. And I want what God wants. I want His will. A prayer life begins that is effective with a humbleness of heart. Did not Jesus Himself example this in His very life? Did not Jesus Himself, the Bible teaches, humble Himself to the cross? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, as he prayed to the Father, not my will but thine be done. In Philippians chapter 2, verse number 8, the Bible teaches us that Christ, being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself to go to the cross. Jesus humbled himself to the obedience of the Father. Think about that for just a moment. What an incredible thing it is that we have the opportunity to follow our Savior, our Christ, our Master, in humbleness of heart by surrendering our will to His in humility. Humility begins with us getting out, out of the way. Humility begins with us setting aside our desires and our plans and our wishes and saying, God, I just want what you want. God, help me to have a greater heart that wants you, your plan, your desires, your kingdom to be done here on this earth. He says, I want... to respond in humility. The people in Assyria and Babylon under the rule of King Ahasuerus responded initially by humbling themselves in a very physical and a demonstrative way. They set aside their will and sought the Lord's will. And as you look through Scripture, look through all those that served and God recorded in His Word. Look at those whom God used over and over and again despite difficult circumstances and you'll find a commonality. You'll find there is a beginning to all of their responses. And it is a humbleness of their desires. It's a humbleness of their will, of their mindset being all set aside, being all cast apart, as it were, and coming to God and saying, God, I need your mind. I need your desire. Because I want your 
will. I want to follow you. And I come to you to seek you in my life. I want to know your mind. I want to know your heart. I want to know your plan. And I want to be in every one of those things. I want to have your mind. I want to have your heart, your desire, and I want to be in your will. Humbleness begins with a sincere desire. A sincere desire to be in the will of God and to humble ourselves. Let me ask you the question when something goes against what you think, what is your first response? It is that of humbleness, of abasing yourself, oneself, and saying, I'm not going to lift myself up in pride. I'm not going to exert anger in response, but I'm going to humble my heart and seek my God, knowing that his way is right, knowing that his plan is perfect, his will is what is loving and good in my life, and I can trust his plan. I can trust what he wants. I can trust what his desires. I can trust how he is working because he's right he's perfect a humility of heart we desperately need in our society today let me ask you are you fighting what god is doing in your life through a situation of temporal circumstance That's not humility. I can't find that humility in the Word of God. A humbleness of heart comes to God and says, God, teach me. Guide me. It's a heart that sincerely wants to do what God desires and is willing to humble and put everything aside for that humility. Their response is, began with humility. But their humility, secondly, was joined with prayer. This is a powerful thought right here. Think about this for just a moment. In Esther chapter 4, notice what the Bible says in verse number 3. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, There was great mourning among the Jews. Notice these words, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth, in ashes. The Bible teaches us that the Jews humbled themselves. That God's people, hearing about a proclamation that was very much against the word of God, God is for his people, did he not say, I will bless them that bless thee, I will curse them that curse thee. It is very clear that God is for his people, and he hasn't changed his position on that. But as he, as they see, receive this instruction and their notice, that the decree was to kill every Jew, they began to immediately fast and pray. I understand that the word and pray is not exactly in 
Esther chapter 4, verse number 3, but as you look through Scripture, you will find prayer and fasting tied together. You cannot separate one from the other. It is an incredibly powerful way in which they Jews were humbling themselves and praying, seeking God's face, seeking the Lord, seeking His will, wanting to know His mind, wanting to get His heart. It was a fervent moment in which they decided to set apart some things and spend some time with God. This was a moment in which they chose to walk with God in prayer. In Psalms chapter 35, the Bible teaches us false witnesses did rise up as David is giving testimony through a song here. Notice what he says. They laid uh, to my charge things that I knew not. David speaking of a circumstance. There are false witnesses coming to me. There are false witnesses that are stating things that I didn't even know about. I'm not even aware of. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, how did David respond? What was his response to those times in which he was charged and and had allegations in which he was innocent of? When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. What was he saying? He's saying when they were sick, when my enemies were struggling, I was willing to humble myself and willing to seek God's face on their behalf. Notice he says, I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned unto, uh, into mine own bosom. He said, I was willing to humble myself with fasting because I wanted to see prayer become real in my heart and life once again. I felt like there was a time in which the heavens were a sounding brass. But when I come to the Lord and I begin to fast and pray and humble myself, David said, I could suddenly begin to see my prayer life beginning to change me, beginning to work in the circumstances around me. I could see God answer and see God move I could see my prayer become close to my heart once again David David humbled himself with prayer and fasting was it not Daniel that stated in Daniel chapter 9 and I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes Daniel, to humble himself, he prayed and fasted. It was a time of prayer with fasting. Again, these are kindred doctrines. These are kindred uh, prayer partners, if we could put it that way. In Matthew chapter 17, as Jesus is speaking uh, to his disciples in verse number 21, as he implores and uh, instructs the disciples about a fervent a a life that is filled with the spirit of god he states "Howbeit this kind cannot uh, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting jesus truly uh, jesus truly taught his disciples that prayer and fasting coupled together are truly a strength and a power that can be found only in the prayer closet that can only be found in this time of prayer and fasting Throughout the Bible, 
We see these things coupled and joined together as God's people sought the Lord and his will. Prayer helps us to have, uh, helps us to give and uh, our, our heart and to pour our heart out to the Lord. And it helps us to pour that out to the just judge, the one who can right every wrong, the one who can change every decree, the one that can change any law, the one that can change any circumstance. And it steadies our heart and mind, and it begins to quiet our spirit. You see, prayer and fasting are vital in every response to a situation that goes beyond our control. We can express our heart to our God through prayer. We can show complete openness to him because he already knows everything that is in our heart. And as we seek the Lord in a spirit of wanting God's mind and his will, God begins to direct us. God begins to shape our thoughts. God begins to move in our spirits. God begins to under, helps us to understand and to see in the way in which we ought to go. God begins to shape us in prayer. Prayer changes us. It changes things. Prayer is essential if we are going to respond well. My friends, instead of cursing our government, how many hours have we spent in prayer? How much time have we bathed our, 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 the parliament and our MP and our government and our prime minister in prayer? How, much, how many hours and days have we fasted and prayed, beseeching the Lord of God and saying, God, would you help and guide and direct? Would you meet and need and change instructions? My friend, are we not supposed to have a faith that believes that God can? If we believe that God can, it'll drive us to our knees. Oh, my friends, we need to get back on our prayer call back in our prayer closet we need to get back to our knees we need to get to the holy spot we need to yield our heart and our mind to the holy spirit of god and allow him to teach us and to guide us and help us to enjoy those seasons of prayer enjoy those moments and see those moments so real and powerful as david saw a prayer life becoming something that was more than just getting on our knees and saying a few words, saying something out of habit, saying something maybe that we even found in a book or in a ritual somewhere, but getting on our knees and saying, God, I'm going to come to you as my heavenly father. I'm going to come to you as a son to a father. You've invited me to come. And as you invite me to come, I am coming humbly. I'm coming wanting your will. I'm coming wanting your mind and your heart. I want what you want. And God, I pray that you would help now teach me guide me, strengthen me, uh, uh, strengthen me, help me to see what you see. Oh, what a wonderful and powerful thing it is for us to humble ourselves in prayer and for us to pray wanting the mind of God. Prayer truly does a battle in which we cannot do. It does a work in which we cannot. It does that in which we are unable to do physically. It is truly a supernatural access to our holy God. Let's pray. Let's get on our knees and pray. Pray for those who are enforcing the instruction. 
Pray for those who are battling what the instruction should be. Pray for those that are imposing things that are contrary to God's instruction. Pray for them. Did not, does not the Bible teach that very thing? I'm reminded of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who prayed for those who were stoning him. Think about this for just a moment. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was telling them how to get saved. And they were so angry and they were so filled with wrath that they began to stone him for sharing the love of God. And as they began to stone him, Stephen prayed for them. Prayed for them. We have no idea what our prayer is going to do. Stephen died that day, but as they died, there was a man that was witnessing the stoning of Stephen. His name is Saul. They threw their clothes down at the feet of Saul as testimony of their sentence of death upon Stephen's life. Saul two chapters later in Acts chapter 9, would get saved. God answered Stephen's request even after his life was over. Even after he, he breathed that last breath, God answered that prayer. Saul got saved. Saul would follow this powerful testimony. I could only envision that this was in a moment in which it engraved it into the heart and mind of Saul. This may have been one of those pricks that Jesus spoke to Saul about in Acts chapter 9. That constant reminder of Stephen on his last moments praying for him and those around Saul would take this testimony of Stephen and he would implement it in his own life. God would give him opportunity to preach the gospel to those who jailed and imprisoned him. Some of them got saved. The Bible speaks of one, called a, we call him the Philippian jailer got saved and became part of the church in Philippi, I believe. And that man would help, would help Paul, uh, Saul, known as Paul then, and others begin to preach Christ and help more churches start, not only physically, but also even monetarily as they helped and gave to work and to help churches start. Saul saw a testimony of a man who was willing to pray for those who were against him, like Jesus Christ on the cross. Stephen followed the example of Christ, and Saul understood then the relevance and the power of praying for those who despitefully use you, just praying for those who are our enemies, praying for those who are taking a stance against what God's truth is. And God says when we have a moment in which we come to him and we pray, <coughs> God says there is great power, and gives great power in that prayer. 
Oh, how we ought to get on our knees and pray. We need to get on our knees and pray and pray and pray. We want our society to change. We want things to change. But have we spent a moment in prayer? We talk and we sing that sweet hour of prayer. Have we spent a sweet hour of prayer praying and asking God to be with these situations, asking Him to help us change, uh, 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 or asking Him to change our heart and our mind to His heart and His mind? There is power in prayer. Churches are powerless today because there's little prayer. We need to be called a house of prayer like Jesus instructed and admonished. We need to get on our knees and we need to pray. Prayer meeting ought not to be the least attended meeting. It ought to be the most attended meeting of the week. Prayer meeting ought not to be something in which people say, oh, I can miss that, but it's something that I have to be at. Why? Because we're going to our God, and our God can do that in which we cannot do. And prayer works. We need to bathe our actions, our responses, our plans in prayer with a heart that desires to follow the leading of our Master, Jesus Christ. May we come to Him in prayer. God can do the impossible. Nothing is impossible with our God. But is there a power behind our testimony that began when we pray. When's the last time you spent season in prayer? I'm not talking just for your physical needs or your daily needs. I'm talking about praying for our country, praying for our government, praying for our leaders, praying for the situations We need to pray. We need to get on our knees and pray. Humble ourselves and pray. Humility and prayer begin to grow our hearts into the following responses. And we will go from there next week. So much more we want to look at tonight, but we don't have time. May we begin tonight. I know we have been praying, but have we been praying as much as we should? Have we been focusing upon our God in prayer? We need to get back to a prayer life. We need to humble ourselves. We don't have every answer, but we have the God who does. We can trust his plan. He's right. We don't see the big picture. He does. We can only see a short distance away of what we think may happen. And even that, we are so wrong about so often. 
But God is never wrong. He is perfect. He is trustworthy. He is one that we can come to and we can humble ourselves and say, God, not my will, but thine. Now teach me. Help me in prayer. God, be with the situation. Help my heart to be yours. Humble. Humility and prayer begins the responses.